Welcome to the Ruck Rover. My name is Christian. Let's get around it. Welcome to the Ruck Rover. So good to have you with us. And I'm joined on the line today by a new guest. She is the host of the I See It But I Don't Believe It podcast and runs Play On Radio straight from Melbourne. It is Gemma Bastiani. Jimmy, how are you? I'm great. How about you? I'm doing okay. I'm feeling the Melbourne vibes up here in Sydney at the moment. It is bitterly cold. Sheets of rain were pouring down on us all day. I imagine that's nothing new for you down there, but uh, I wasn't feeling it today. I love it. I'm a big fan of that kind of weather, so I'm good with this. You're sicko. You must love it down there. I mean, I love the cold. That's one thing I will say. I'm originally from Perth, and I do love when it is nice and frosty, but the rain I cannot deal with. I cannot abide. Oh, no, it just makes me so happy. When I wake up and it's raining, I'm like, this is going to be a great day. Uh, and walk me through what a great day in the rain looks like then. Does it involve football at all? Do you get the poncho out when you go watch games? Everything involves football for me. <laughs> uh, not the poncho. I have two really good jackets with good hoods and I'm ready to go. So I suppose that leads into uh, what we're going to be talking about today, which is the Swans, and that is I will be at the Swans Hawthorne game and we were talking off air that you were this close to actually coming up for that particular one. Yeah, does anyone want to buy me flights up? Because I'll definitely take off work. Look, we'll start, we'll start a Patreon on this. We don't have a Patreon <laughs> yet, but we'll get it going just so you can make it to the Swans game at the SCG this Friday night. Uh, but hey, thanks so much for coming on. The first thing I wanted to ask you is you run Play On Radio. Can you talk our listeners through what that is and what it involves. I do have the blurb from your uh, website here, which I might go through very briefly, which is that Play On Radio exists to highlight the cultural crossover between modern music and footy, bringing together an informed, diverse and fresh group of presenters to host a plethora of new shows and popular podcasts. Yeah, so I've worked in music for eight to ten years now, and obviously I'm big into music. I've had the Australian Jams podcast for a long time, and I ran a music blog for a number of years, managed bands, did all that stuff. And music's always been a big thing for me, but footy has always been equally my passion. Um, I literally have the Swans logo tattooed on my hand. So like since I was 18, very, very much into footy. Um, And I've been finding more and more recently, one, the frustration myself and a lot of my friends have with footy broadcasting and the way footy's covered, um, particularly in Melbourne, but across the country. I think it's a really poor level. Um, two, really negative, I think is a big problem, trying to find more positivity around footy. Um, and three, with the advent of AFLW and all that sort of stuff, I think there's a much bigger crossover between the two industries than anyone likes to admit. So I'm trying to find this place in between that caters to both um, and particularly caters to people that are interested in both but find very few places they can enjoy it. So typically um, – so I'm obviously – a uh, 20-year-old, uh, mid-20s female who is not the target market for the AFL. Um, so all footy, all music crossovers into footy tends to be classic Australian rock, Triple M type stuff, and um, it's just not what I think it needs to always be. Um, and for a lot of my friends and myself, uh, it's not what we want. So, I, yeah. That's the long version. Tried to find that spot in between. And we're slowly building it. It's obviously still very new um, and it's all run off my own salary at work. So um, we're building it slowly. Ideally, I could have a cash injection and spend six months just working on it. But um, it is what it is at the moment and hopefully we can build. So what is an example of finding that middle ground between, you know, I'm not going to say millennial music, but modern music? rather than 80s pub rock and things like that, which I, I agree with you does seem to dominate that AFL landscape and football as it's played now with all its diversity through the AFLW. So have you found something in particular that you're really focused on right now that works to bridge that gap? So we try to alternate shows. We try to have um, in our show blocks, we try to have footy, then music, footy, then music, trying to move between the two. Um, all our footy shows are by a lot, like people that are quite a bit younger. So they're more aware of, current social issues and things like that and kind of cover the game in a way that kind of fits 
how I feel we should look at the game, I guess, which is more positive, more understanding of people having mental health issues and all that sort of stuff and respect for women. Um, And then the other thing is there are a lot of people involved in footy that want to talk about music. They're going to gigs. So getting people involved in footy, playlisting an hour of music, um, things like that. So recently we had Lloyd Paris, who's a development coach at the Swans, playlist uh, two hours of music for us. And it's all modern music. It's all Australian music. So um, finding that crossover there, but also talking to a lot of musos who love footy, who when I catch them at gigs or when chatting, they just want to talk to me about footy. So um, Ed from Mount Defiance is a huge Geelong supporter and will shout at me from the stage when Geelong's beaten Sydney. Or um, Mickey from Kilns is a huge Carlton supporter who will yell it from the stage all the time. So finding people talking about the thing that crosses over, then being able to play their music in between, I think is really beneficial. Yeah, it's funny that you mentioned that because I used to uh, run a website called The Yarn way back in 2013 where we were trying to bridge not necessarily music but popular culture and sport. And I remember the second article we ever put up was by my colleague Alex Walters who actually started this podcast with me and he wrote what if every AFL team was a modern band and I wish that I could find the text of that but I do distinctly remember that he did equate the Fremantle Dockers to the National basically because it was just indie darlings, sad boys just shuffling around Fremantle wondering what might be. Uh, I really want to find the whole list because that was about, yeah, five years ago or something that we were in a very poor version of what you're doing now trying to figure out those little links. Can you please find it? I would love I to. I will. I actually want to. I'm sure he has it somewhere. Uh, I'll look on the drop boxes and stuff like that. And if I can, I'll put it on our Instagram. That's at the Ruck yeah. Rover and tag you on that as well. But hey, uh, speaking about footy, just purely and generally quickly, you also host your own podcast on Play On Radio. And that has, and I think this is the most fantastic name that I've heard for a podcast so far, which is the I See It But I Don't Believe It podcast, which, of course, is a homage to Nick Davis in the 2005, and I want to say that is the preliminary final? at Semi. the S- Semi-final, that's right, against Geelong, low-scoring affair. Have you ever done that game yet? Now, I should say, play on radio hosts, obviously, the I See It But I Don't Believe It podcast, which is you with a different guest each time going back through either classic games or classic uh, rivalries, eras, moments in AFL history and sort of replaying them and reimagining them for the modern context. Uh, have you ever done that game yet? I didn't see it on there. I've listened to a few of them now. Yeah, so um, each episode I have a different guest and they choose what they want to talk about. So the whole idea is uh, a nostalgic moment in footy history that they remember. So pretty much I set up the te- tent poles of time throughout the uh kind of the moment happening and then they fill it in with their emotion in between it their emotion from remembering it um we kind of have covered that game we did um an episode i did it with two swan supporting sisters named imogen and annie and we did the whole 2005 final series because as much as that moment is iconic and I distinctly remember watching that moment happen, um, I remember going to that grand final, that whole final series was actually really remarkable and people kind of talk about the, uh, as much as I hate to say it, the Western Bulldogs 2016 kind of, they just had a great month of football. The context around that Swans final series was actually incredible. Not only were they playing a style of football that everyone was saying can't win games? Andrew Demetrio, the head of footy at the time, was um, publicly coming out and saying they'll never have success with he this game it. style. He hated it. He absolutely hated it. Hated it. And then to go through the final series the way the Swans did, coming back not only in that game but the week after they were seven goals down against St Kilda and came back in the final quarter and then the grand final to have so many iconic moments, the Leo Barry mark obviously – that whole final series was actually ridiculous. Um, So we didn't want to just focus on the one quarter because there was so much else. So we just did an episode around all of it. Yeah, I wanted to do the entire game. So that's already been done, which is a huge bummer because I wanted to request that I come (laughs) and do that because I maintain that Nick Davis's final quarter, but that game as a whole, because it it gets lost to history, what a low-scoring affair that was and how down the Swans were 
You know, they were on 40-something points in the fourth quarter before Nick Davis comes alive and kicks those four last-quarter goals, which culminates in Anthony Hudson saying, I see it, but I don't believe it. That is, uh, and you can count me on this, is my favourite football moment, on-field moment of all time. And I should also mention... in a. Uh, it, it is. Uh, Stephen Hill's goal against Geelong in 2013 when we were at the Cattery and we were sent there because we were Fremantle and they actually said that if we were any other team with a bigger supporter base, that final would have been played at the MCG, but it was actually played down at the Cattery and all the Geelong newspapers were getting on us and saying that we were crying and everything like that. And then Stephen Hill came off the interchange bench in the qualifying final ran to 50 and kicked that goal to put us into the prelim, which ultimately went on to the grand final from there. May eclipse it, but I think on just pure energy and joy <laughs> and, I mean, Anthony Hudson's call of that moment, Nick Davis's yep. last quarter, stands out for me as the best moment that I've ever seen in football. That quarter is probably on par, I think, with Cooter's prelim 99 quarter. I think they're on par with each other in terms of just – Unbelievable to see. Um, but the Nick Davis one, obviously, closer to my heart. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, before we get into we're actually here at the moment to talk about the Swans and specifically their development over the last three years. Before we get there, we're going to touch on a few little things from the weekend that has just passed because they are notable enough for us to quickly have a yarn about. And the first one is, of course, Hawthorne's illustrious captain, a man who I'm not quite sure whether I'll be seeing him play on the weekend. I believe that the tribunal is convening maybe tonight or maybe it's MRO tonight and Tomorrow we actually have the tribunal, I believe. I feel like it's now. I feel like it's now as well, but I thought they normally did it after is on a it Tuesday. Appeal but the next night. Oh, it is appeal. That's right. So that Maybe. is happening right now. I'm just um, keeping on Twitter for you anyway. Oh, thank you. I appreciate that. <laughs> um, so Ben Stratton, obviously, as you all already know by now, is gone straight to the tribunal for number one pinching Orazio Fantasia, the small forward for the Essendon Football Club, on Friday night, but. Potentially more devastating is stomping on Sean McKernan's foot during a break in play. Now, I'm going to throw to you on this, Gemma, quickly after I have my little missive here. But for me, this is an act of not only childishness, but also outright thuggery. On the one hand, you have the pinching and there's shades of Ryan Crowley and Brent Harvey in, I think that was about 2014, about yeah, all of this, true. in which he was accused of that and actually was suffered a fine for pinching. But at the same time, that never had the brutal physical evidence that we were presented with with Orazio Fantasia. And this is also not the first time that Ben Stratton has been accused of pinching someone this season either. But for me, and that should be stamped out, I think you should get a week for that personally, but the stomping on another player's foot when you could genuinely injure them, I can't really imagine it in any other professional code in 2019, I can't imagine where it would be acceptable for you to try and basically injure, potentially break someone's foot and prevent them from playing, not even remotely close to being near the ball or any part of the play. I think that is pretty egregious, especially from your captain. And I'm glad that Hawthorne have come out and made a strong statement about it, but I think it's pretty atrocious. What do you think? Um, I The pinching... Him coming out and saying that he's terribly sorry about and all that jazz, um, I don't take a lot from that considering he did it the week before. Yeah, he's sorry he got caught. Sorry because no one said anything. He's sorry he got caught. Um, That's essentially it. Yeah. Um, The stomping I really hate. And I know Brad Johnson has gotten a week for stomping in the past. Straight away they usually just, that's it, you're done for a week because it is such a dangerous thing. And then he also had that gesture to the crowd, which was just unnecessary as well. Um, I don't know, just Hawthorne, as a Swan supporter, Hawthorne's a club that I'm not a fan of. Um, that goes back to the good stuff and all of that sort of and the finals before that. But I don't know, it just feels slightly fitting that a player that does stuff like that is somehow the captain of Hawthorne. I know that sounds horrible, but I just – they maybe it's an ego thing and they think that they can get away with it. Um, it's just horrible what he did, and he just had a really dirty night. And I, I was just recording my preview, uh, my uh, review of the round before we jumped on. Um, I think that 
I think that the Dane Rampy stuff, everyone had to go at Rampy for the post stuff, climbing on the post and, oh, he's a captain, he's this, he's that. That was against Essendon as well. And people are comparing the two. I think Rampy didn't harm anyone. He did something incredibly idiotic at that time, but he didn't physically harm anyone. Stratton went out to intentionally hurt people, and I think that's where the difference is, and that's where it's so much worse, and then so much worse that he's a captain as well. Yeah, I agree. I'm not quite sure what it symbolises for Hawthorne. For me, I don't know about the their team necessarily, but for me what it symbolises is sort of hard times at Hawthorne now. I think for the first time they are really coming to terms with the fact that it is not 2013 to 2015 anymore and that they are not necessarily going to just be able to free agent their way out of their particular team or their particular situation. And now, whether he's been doing it for a long time or not, who can say? I definitely know he's done it the week before in Ben Stratton. But there seems to be these little desperation moves like that. There seems to be this will to assert maybe an old Hawthorne that kind of isn't there anymore. And I think they need to come up against that mortality rather than going kicking and screaming with those sorts of actions. Um yeah, I think that's the thing about Hawthorne this year as well is that not to get too far into the weeds with it, but... No, this show's all about getting in the weeds. We've got an hour, <laughs> we're going to go there. Well, Hawthorne are just this kind of middling club at the moment. So the, the Swans, I use them as an example. We'll get into more detail soon, but the Swans are a team that might be lower than them on the ladder, but there's so much about them that's so exciting and people are still really invested in them. And even if they lose games, you find all these positives... And then Geelong, who are the benchmark right now, they don't have any holes on the field. They're doing amazing stuff. Hawthorne are just this team in the middle that, yeah, might win a few games this year, but there's nothing exciting about them. There's nothing to kind of latch onto for the future. They're just a bit of a nothing team now. And I don't think Hawthorne fans are used to being a nothing team. And now Stratton's done this and that's got them into the kind of press again, but that's all it is. Well... Uh, something else horrible happened today in which Jeff Kennett suggested oh, yeah. that uh, who would know what crowd behaviour is because the security guards all look like, and I quote here, new arrivals. So, I mean, they're finding ways to get into the press. Um, I'm Again, I'm not quite sure. For me, Hawthorne at the moment, uh, we talk about in the NBA Lakers exceptionalism where they're just talking about how they're so amazing that people should want to come to them. I feel like there is a little bit of Hawthorne exceptionalism, which is... No matter how bad it is, we'll get Jaeger O'Meara. We'll, we might get Stephen Cornelio or someone like that to come to our club. It's all going to be fine. And I think in a lot of ways that needs to be shattered in order for them to rebuild into a new team and a really good team like they did coming out of the mire of the early 2000s where they were horrific and they got all those draft picks, including a number one pick in the like of Luke Hodge, to actually build this particular team who was so successful with. But anyway, but that's the thing. They did that through drafting. Now, yes. instead, they've gotten in O'Meara, they've gotten in Scully, they've gotten in um, Scrimshaw. They're getting all these players in that are injured and then take time to get up to scratch. It's, they're, they're going about it in a completely different way to their, what they did in the early 2000s. And the rules and do allow for that to happen, but it just depends yeah. whether they're actually going to make that premiership team that they think they're going to out of those sorts of guys. Exactly, yeah. 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 We touched on the AFL crowd control briefly. There's been a statement today from the Marvel CEO, I believe, who said, yes, there has been not necessarily a beefing up of security, but a beefing up of their visibility. Uh, do you have any particular comments on this? You're down there in Melbourne, potentially going to places like Marvel and the MCG. Have you noticed anything? Do you have anything, an opinion on where we sit now with our sort of AF? For me, more than anything, it symbolises a sort of low in fan AFL relations, regardless of whether that security beefing up or visibility, I should say, was warranted or not. We seem to have really hit this rock bottom. Like you can't have a conversation about the security without bringing up the rules, without bringing up uh, mid-season drafting. It all seems to be culminating in this pot of sort of fan discontent right now. Rightly or wrongly, that's where it all seems to be combining. Um, I come at this, uh, again, as a woman, as a younger woman, um, as someone that has copped awful, awful stuff from um, particularly older male fans at the game before. This, to me, m makes me happier because 
I feel like I can go to a game and not be abused. Like I, the Sydney Richmond game recently, I copped some really bad abuse for just talking to my friend. Um, and it makes me feel really uncomfortable going to games, particularly alone, um, because you're subjected to so much stuff. And I think um, people in my situation, a lot of my friends and stuff, we're in a position where we go to a lot of AFLW games um, and we found how much nicer the crowd is there. So the juxtaposition probably makes, even though the crowd, the men's crowds maybe haven't changed overly, it's more noticeable how unpleasant they are. You feel much more tense at games. So this alongside the goods, um, Doco coming out, and there's been kind of this microscope on fan behaviour from that, from the fights that have happened, from all that stuff, and it's kind of culminated in this thing. And no doubt the people that have an issue with fan security being more intense or beefed up or more visible are also the ones that booed goods and didn't think it was racist. Like I think that that mire of people are also – the target market of the AFL because they tend to have the disposable income to spend on things. So that's where it comes in. And this is just something that I feel, but this is where the whole triple M SEN target tradies thing, because they have the disposable income. They are the only ones that are interested in football that they care about. And that's what everything is targeted at. And all these other people that have been brought into footy through the AFLW or have always been involved in footy, but, too timid to be outspoken about it, they're starting to feel like they're being left out in the cold, even though they're a quieter majority. And the fan security thing kind of comes into that. Most of my friends, uh, most of the people I talk to about football, most of the people I interact with about football are happy about there being a crackdown on abusive behaviour because all of us have copped abusive behaviour at games before just for going along and supporting our team. Um, I'm the most passionate uh, footy fan you'll ever find. Um, And not once have I ever felt like I needed to stand up and abuse anyone at a game. So I don't understand why people think that um, their their opportunity to abuse someone is what comes as part of the game. Um, The game is what happens on the field. It's not the other shit. Um, So, yeah, I, I just don't understand how in people's heads their action towards the game is what footy is about, not what's actually happening on the field. Like, be frustrated at umpires. Be frustrated that you don't understand why something's not called. Don't think that your interaction back at it is what the game is, if that makes sense. Yeah, definitely. Um, I, Yeah, that's absolutely 100% true from where I'm sitting. I mean, when I'm talking about the low point in terms of fandom, I'm saying rightly or wrongly, it seems to be it just gets caught up in everything else. But... I think these crowds have gotten away with a lot for a long time. And the fact that that is changing is good. Now, whether I would like to see, you know, is it the visibility that I want to see or is it actually you stopping the fights or preventing the racial or sexual vilification of someone? That's what I want to see. I don't want a lot of people just walking around because I can imagine that for some people who are minding their own business, maybe that is strange to them. But in terms of these people putting tape over their mouths and decrying Uh. free speech, I mean, these people have gotten away with a lot for a very long time. And as soon as we start wading into, quote, unquote, oh, you can't say anything anymore, I immediately let the hairs on my neck start to stand up, as they do for you as well. Yeah. I, um, <laughs> The people, uh, uh, I'm making a blanket statement here, but. You've already slagged off everyone at Hawthorne, so, yeah, let's make another one. <laughs> um, the people that, are, that seem to have a problem with it, probably need to look inward as to why they have a problem with it because they obviously think that something they've said is abusive and they think they're going to be caught for it. And I think that's the biggest thing we need to look at. Well, let's move on to happy things. We've dealt with sad things. Now we're moving on to things that make you extremely happy, Gemma. Gemma, I should say. Gemma. And that is, we're talking about the Swans, and more specifically, we are talking about the Swans' development and turnover of players over the last three years and sort of from there charting their trajectory onwards in 2019 and also beyond. So let's set the stage because this was a topic that you were really passionate about speaking about, but if it's all right for me to set it from where I'm sitting, and that is I went to the 2016 Grand Final 
team that played the Western Bulldogs. And shameless plug here, uh, I did not know about your podcast at the time, but Alex Walters and I, friend of this show, in a few weeks' time, will actually be releasing our own version, if you will, of I See It But I Don't Believe, in which we are doing the four weeks of the Western Bulldogs 2016 Premiership. So I apologise in advance that that is coming out. No, that's out. okay, because I will never cover that because <laughs> it's too painful. <laughs> um, so look out for that one. It's going to be out in a few weeks. We're really, really excited to record that. But in 2016, the list of players who I have here, I'm just going to bring them up now, who actually played in that particular game, is Jake Lloyd, Heath Grundy, Nick Smith, Callum Mills, Jeremy Laidler, Dane Rampey, Kieran Jack, Josh Kennedy, Jared McVeigh, Tom Mitchell, Lance Franklin, Luke Parker, Tom Papley, Kurt Tippett, Ben McGlynn. And on the interchange bench, we have Gary Rowan, Zach Jones, George Hewitt, and Xavier Richards. And the followers, I should mention, Naismith, Hanabry, and Heaney. Now, by my count, nine of those players are now no longer at the club. But what's really interesting to me is four of those players are at the club but are missing through injury, including fan favourite Nick Smith, a.k.a. the babysitter, because he puts small forwards to sleep, which is the most fantastic nickname in the entirety of the (laughs) AFL. So talk us through 2016 to now and that development of players that you really wanted to talk about. I have an idea of who we're specifically going to be mentioning, but there are some huge things there. For example, Grundy and Laidler, the two pillars of that back line, are no longer there. We need to touch on, of course, the leaving of Tom Mitchell and everything that that involves. And who has kind of stepped up in that time, in your eyes, to fill those voids for the Sydney Swans? Because it is it is not great times for them at the moment. They currently sit, I believe it's fourth last on the AFL ladder here. They sit at 15. Uh, yeah, 15. They do? Yep. Yes. So where, where do we go from here? Where did it start? And where are we going for the Sydney Swans? So I'll start out by saying I love Kurt Tippett and I miss him every day. I am Kurt Tippett's number one fan, even though everyone seems to hate him. Um, I was going to say, I do not hear that very often from a Swans fan or any fan, not because everyone necessarily wishes Kurt Tippett ill, but I love the fact that you are ride or die for Kurt. Seriously, uh, I would bring out the stats whenever anyone had a go about him. I loved Kurt Tippett and I was just so sad that he had to retire through injury because I think he had a really bad luck run with everything that happened, injury, the suspension, all of that. He was a very, very good player for the Swans when he could get on the field, but he just couldn't get the games together. He was on track for All-Australian in in 2014, I want to say, 2015, um, until he had that season-ending injury halfway through. 2014, he was the Swans' leading goal kicker. Like, very, very good player, um, and I miss him all the time. I have my Kurt Tippett Guernsey. With number eight on the back? Game. Sorry? Is it with number eight on the back? I believe. And his name. Oh, I was going to say, I was hoping it was just the number eight, and I'd be like, that's a Trent Dennis Lane jumper. But that's for all you <laughs> Trent Robot Dennis now. Lane fans out there, which there are two. Are there really? Uh, one of them is my friend Caleb McKenna, because we used to joke about that when we used to um, <laughs> talk about the Swans. But that's probably about it, to be honest. <laughs> Well, it's James Rowbottom now, which is pretty good. But um, Shout out, James. Yeah. Um, so I've got – I had a look at the numbers and it didn't take me long because all of it's up in my head anyway. But <laughs> since round one 20 – and I should preface by saying I'm really intense about stats and stuff like that, particularly with the Swans. So if I get crazy here, I apologize. Go for um, it. Since round one 2016, the Swans have debuted 22 players. That doesn't include – players that came from other clubs and had their club debut there, Um, just players that played their first ever AFL game at the Swans. 22 players, which is pretty much a full side. Um, Since then, four of those have been delisted and one has been traded. So Nick Newman is the one that got traded. The four delisted were Jordan Foote, Harry Marsh, Abe Davis and Jack Hiscox. Um, I thought Harry Marsh was pretty unlucky to get delisted, just going to say that. But so 2016, we had Tom Papley, George Hewitt, and Callum Mills all debut in round one against Collingwood. Um, Tom Papley kicked three goals on debut. That year, he was the absolute last player to get picked up. So he was the last player in the rookie draft. He pretty much got picked up a few weeks before um, the preseason competition started, came out and kicked three goals on debut. 
Uh, George Hewitt, he kicked one goal three, I think, something really inaccurate that game as well. He was had a huge impact. He was originally picked up as a small forward, and we've all seen what he's become. Callum Mills was the much-talked-about one. That year, we also had Jordan Foote, Harry Marsh, Abe Davis, Jack Hiscock, so the four that got delisted, and Aaliyah Aaliyah debuted in 2016. So that's three years ago. Then we moved to 2017. Will Hayward, Ollie Florent, Nick Newman, Jordan Dawson, Robbie Fox, Lewis Malikin all debuted. Out of those four, two, uh, a couple were eligible for Rising Star. Will Hayward and Lewis Malikin both got nominations. Um, Lewis Malikin had an amazing game on St Kilda where he kept uh, Nick Rewalt really quiet during that game. I think Rewalt kicked one goal on him in the first quarter and that was it. Um, Will Hayward obviously had an amazing season. He wasn't getting nominated, wasn't getting nominated. And then in round 23 against Carlton, that game where Buddy kicked 10 goals to win the Coleman, Will Haywood had three touches for three goals and got his Rising Star nomination that final round. 2018, we had Ben Ronk debut. Obviously, he had a big standout game in his third game. Tom McCartan, Riley Stoddart, Colin O'Riordan, Darcy Cameron all debuted. And then this year so far, we've had James Rowbottom, Justin McInerney, and Nick Blakey. So that's 22 players over three years that have come in and been blooded. And most of those players, people are seeing playing every single week for the Swans at the moment. They're building up the bulk of what this team is. So context as well. So on two weeks ago where the Swans played West Coast, won by 45 points, put together a really beautiful team game where there were a few standouts, but across the board, everyone contributed really strongly. Um, Only six players had played more than 100 games in that team. So it's Buddy, it's Luke Parker, it's Jake Lloyd, players like that. Everyone else had only been around from this kind of era of Swans. Um, obviously, Luke, uh, Tom Papley kicked five goals in that game as well. He had something like 12 score involvement, involvements or something. So his impact is huge. Can I talk to you about Tom Papley for a moment, if that's Always. all right? Because I have been uh, very critical of the Angry Ant over the journey because... I liked him when he was playing closer to goal. I thought he was a natural goal kicker. I thought he was fantastic there. And he was moved into the midfield at points earlier in this season. And then I had a big problem because I thought his disposal efficiency was especially lacking. And I understand why they had to do that because they have injuries to their inside midfielders. And he looks like someone who's as hard as a cat's head who can burrow in there, win the ball and extract it. But I'm really glad, especially in that West Coast game, that he was playing closer to goal and able to kick those goals. Because for me, that is where he is most effective. I feel like you're kind of robbing Peter to pay Paul if you move him out of that mix and place him in the midfield where his goal now suffers and you have to rely more on accurate kicking to hit up half forwards and full forwards. Now, you follow them more closely than I do. Is that accurate? So what we've seen from the Swans this year, and uh, there's been... A lot of Swan supporters are very frustrating because they complain about John Longmire and his coaching and he's only got one plan. He can't do anything different. It was very, very clear early in this season that he knew he had a very young list. So it was his opportunity to try some different things. Uh, So we saw him running some faster players through the middle and not all just contested ball players. So early in the season we saw – sorry, I will get to Tom Papley as part of this. Oh, I can see how it's going to loop around. Don't worry. We saw George Hewitt playing up forward. Um, We saw Zach Jones running through the middle. We saw Harry Cunningham having to spend more time in defence through injury. Um, Ollie Florent has been running through the middle a lot more. So we've seen a change over there. But due to um, Josh Kennedy going down, they needed to move George Hewitt back into the middle. Um, And his game has gone up another notch thanks to being in the position where he really should be. So that's worked. Tom Papley is a different situation. I think they've always wanted him to be in the middle. They just needed his endurance to get up because he's had injury setbacks his first few years at the club. He finally had a full preseason. So he has the fitness up to be able to run through the middle. I think he's a really key playmaker for the club. I think he has a place in the middle at times and then other times needs to sit forward. Early in the season, I don't think they had the balance right between how much time he spent in the middle and how much was forward. But I think on the weekend, we saw how damaging he can be when he kind of balances at 50-50. And he was able to get that breakaway speed. And again, 
without Zach Jones in the side, who notoriously is very fast, but his execution isn't great, which James Rose has kind of gone in as the replacement there. But Papley, his ability to break through a stoppage is important. So it's all about the planning of it. So if Buddy's outside the 50 and the one kicking it in, then Papley can sit forward and make those good choices. But if Buddy's not outside the 50, or maybe even Blakey, who we'll touch on soon, isn't outside the 50 being that one kicking it in, I think Papley needs to be the one breaking through and just getting it deep. And that's the way they've been using him. So, uh, yeah, I think early in the season there were a few things they tried that they did with a tiny bit off getting right. And then once it started to get right, all of that started working. So even the way they played Ole Florent from the wing through the middle and uh, Menzel coming into the side and being that small forward that kind of isn't match fit yet but is getting there, there's all those little things that it's like such an intricate puzzle that as soon as it clicks, it's so damaging. But when it's that tiny bit off, it just it looks like a mess. But as soon as it moves that tiny bit, then it is amazing. I've got to say, I don't know if Menzel has actually ever been match fit or he just sort of presents himself as the laziest looking player in the competition. Now, I'm not calling him lazy, especially on the AFL, on the footy broadcast on TV. You can't actually see how hard a forward works up the ground and back to the ground. I just love the fact that you'll kind of like come up for a mark and then he'll turn around and every kick seems to be off one step, no matter whether it's at Geelong <laughs> or Sydney. He's just like, oh, yeah, someone's there. I'll just chuck it on my right boot. But you touched on Blakey then. And let's go yes. into that because there also seems to be, to my mind, when you talk about the Swans and their development, there are sort of two tiers, right? Or maybe there's three tiers. The first tier is the prized academy recruits. And they are, by name, you have Mills, you have Heaney, and you have now Blakey. And then yeah. there is the sort of, I don't know how to describe them, but they come from different drafts and they're very at least similar looking sort of players, if not sort of in the way they play, in which they're all combo players who play a lot of different positions depending on what Jong Longmire wants to do or what he needs from a particular time. And I'm talking about Florent, Hayward, Rose, Fox. I know they all are different players who do different things, but they're sort of recruited a lot of them around the same time and you can play them sort of half forward like Hayward does. Florent can go there if he needs to, or you can run him through the middle at the same thing. Rose can go off halfback, or you can play him at, you know, a sort of half forward if you really need to. I think that's sort of what they do. And then there's sort of everyone else. You've got Aliyah Aliyah, who came from, you know, not necessarily in that. You have obviously the people that they traded in and so on. Do you see any difference in the way those players are developing? Or is it all just one development team, the sky's the limit for all of them, and you're equally stoked to have everyone in your team from Robbie Fox, who was a late pick all the way through to Blakey, who was a very high pick. Um, so I, <laughs> I have four favorite players and they're all kind of strange players to choose. So exciting Tom land Mc on me. Tom, yeah, Papley. Tom McCartan, Robbie Fox, Harry Cunningham and uh, Jordan Dawson are my favorite players. And then Jordan Dawson is really good. That kid is yeah, good, so man. Been yelling at people about Jordan Dawson for two years, and finally he's kind of got consistent games, and everyone's realizing just how good he is. He played very well in a few games last year, um, but he got injured at a really inconvenient time, so then didn't play the finals. But I think the Swans, the Swans and Geelong probably are the best two at this, where their rookie development is incredible and it's what's propped them up for a really long time. I think that coming into the club, whether you're that prized early recruit or you're a rookie, you get treated the same way. Everyone has to have multiple um, kind of things to bring to the table. So I know he's a bit older, but Menzel is a perfect example of this. There are a lot of people who didn't see the point in picking him up, but he's a player who has amazing goal sense, which is what the Swans need particularly when the forward line is so young. And also his field kicking is outrageous. So did you see his kick to Buddy against West Coast from the wing two weeks ago? Yes, I, I think I did. I'm trying to remember. I did watch the game. So his kicking inboard was was beautiful. And that kind of and the Swans notoriously of recent years have had really poor kicking efficiency. So bringing in players that have filled those just fill those holes, you just have to be a role player. So Blakey is a good example because Blakey came in and he's the son of one of the coaches and he's an academy player and they used a lot of picks on him. Well, not as many as they ended up expecting to. <laughs> sure. Um, 
use it on him. But he comes in and he has to play just as much of a role as Jordan Dawson, who's been a rookie and played Neville for two years. Same as Tom McCartan, who was a number 31 pick and had to hold down centre-half forward for 15 games as the youngest player in the competition. Everyone just has to be able to play their role. And I think that's where the confidence comes in because players like Buddy, who everyone respects and really likes and love the opinion of, if he's sitting there and seeing that you've done something good that may not result in a stat, may not result in a goal, whatever, if he's noticing that and coming over and supporting you, just like Jared McVeigh does or all these other players do, it just is the confidence that allows them to develop more. And I don't know if that answered your question, but that's how I feel about the development. Well, I like it because you mentioned like none of the guys that I spoke about. So you're throwing shade on Florent, Rose, Haywood and Fox, but that is fine. My um, Ruby, who listens to this podcast, is a huge Swans fan. Her favourite will forever be Will Haywood, which I always think is interesting. Can I ask why Harry Cunningham is your favourite? Because Harry Cunningham, for me is a guy who just keeps getting paid no matter what. You forget he's on a list sometimes, and then Harry Cunningham will just be selected all the time, just doing his thing. What is it about Harry Cunningham that you love so much? I'm a big fan of guys who have had to do it the hard way, and um, it's a big joke amongst all my friends, but uh, on my Swan scarf I had the badges of of those four guys, and I have a Mitch Hannon badge from Melbourne. And I think that's really that explains how I feel about players. I, my favorite players are the ones that have had to work hard, that maybe weren't the most talented coming in, that have just gone in and do the one percenters or they do all those little things that allow their teammates to look good. And Harry Cunningham kind of epitomizes that, similar to the way Brett Kirk early in his career did that, where he just does the hard stuff. He doesn't get the stats. He doesn't get told that he's the best. He's not the most talented but he does his job perfectly. And people underestimate how fast Harry Cunningham is and how good he is at stopping a player, an outside runner. So he had two games last year where people didn't realize that he was doing the job that he was. So against Hawthorne in the Ben Ronk game that we've all heard about, um, where he laid 10 tackles and kicked seven goals, the tackles are important there. Um, he the wrong star. But yeah, he sat on Isaac Smith's left foot all night, ran with him all night, didn't allow Isaac Smith to influence the game. He did the same against Lockie Whitfield in round, I want to say, 21 um, later in the season. Just shut down the outside runner. And when we talk about a tagger or shutting down a player, it's usually a contested inside player. But Harry Cunningham does those things on the outside. He's got the speed. Exactly. And goes with them all day and just does the job and quietly goes about it. And it was really devastating when he went down with that adductor earlier in the season because he was playing a really crucial role in defense when all our injuries was happening. We didn't really, we don't really have any small defenders at the moment. They're all kind of bigger guys playing small because Nick Smith is out. Harry Cunningham was playing that role, but now Rampy has had to do it or, um, Cal Mills has had to do it, p- people like that. Zach Jones is out of the side, so he's not there to do that job. So, yeah. <laughs> well, it is one <laughs> of those things, right? They they sort of have talked about the fact that they would like to move Mills ideally one day into the middle or like to move Heaney from a half four down, but they're so damaging at their particular places. And they're basically being good sports and filling holes in whatever needs to sort of happen. And they, for me, are... Uh, I'm still so high on Isaac Heaney. I have bought all the Heaney stock. I bought it early <laughs> and I'm still hoarding it. I mean, I really like Callum Mills. I, I love the fact that he's harder than people think. He's a tough, tough guy and yep. he's got a great uh, disposal by foot, but I think he uses it a little short for my liking sometimes and he doesn't have the breakaway speed like some of those halfback flankers do to actually arc out, you know, beat one tackle and then be through and hitting up. That's why I think he'll actually make a really great contested beast sort of player in the future. I can almost see him being Pendlebury like the way he could, you know, very quickly evade a tackle with one quick step and then be able to use his disposal short, which actually out of a stoppage is even more impressive because it's so hard to get clean disposals out of there. But I don't know what you think about which Swan who's currently developing has the highest ceiling. For me, it's Isaac Heaney. I think he has young Nat Fife written all over him where he has the aerial prowess, but also more than anything, say what you want about how he uses the ball or anything like that, he will, when you put him into the middle, he will hunt the ball, he will tackle anyone who you put in his path. And a worst case scenario, he'll be farming out quality handballs 
to runners on the outside who will use the ball better than he will and he will take contested marks and handball it off to people who are also great users. What do you think? I think Heaney, um, Heaney's benefiting, his development is benefiting from Jordan Dawson being in the side. Jordan Dawson is a pure utility. He can go either end of the ground. He can mark overhead. So that's, and that's what they were using Heaney for last year. He was plugging holes that were cropping up in games. So the Melbourne mark, the mark of the year is an obvious example, but there are so many games where the Swans were on a knife's edge and just throw Heaney into the spot that you're missing someone. Whereas now he's been able to, he's had a few injury niggles this year. So he hasn't kind of had those amazing games that we saw last year, but he's been able to be in and under packs a lot more than what he could last year because Jordan Dawson can be that guy to throw around. On Mills, I don't know if I'm the only one that thinks this. I've not really had this conversation, but I much prefer the idea of Mills staying in the back line. I think his intercept marking ability and footy smarts alongside Rampy and Aaliyah is too crucial to lose him to a midfield where we have other players to run through there. Um, his intercept marking is so important to the structure of that back line. And I would prefer to see him stay in defence, or at least the back half, and Heaney get that inside mid role um, with with uh, Hewitt, with Parker. And Park, people have underestimated what Parker's been able to do, particularly this year. I think that structure looks a lot more appealing to me than putting Mills in the middle as well because our defensive stocks are quite thin at the moment, um, whereas other places on the field we have the players to go there. I think it's just because I love a halfback flanker with dash, and I think that's just my own prejudices coming to the <laughs> fore. I just love any halfback flanker who beats their man and runs off at a million miles an hour, but they have to be able to use it because there's nothing worse that I think that's cropping in now, which is... Well, it's just a long kicking, a long kicking um, backman. Who'd say Jaden Hunt? Yeah, yeah. I mean, well, he's now playing out of the goal square, which, which is, is a genius move. Well, yeah, genius it's like, move. But that is what Christian Petrarca should be. Uh, let's not Pe- talk about Christian, Christian Petrarca. Petrarca. That is, <laughs> Jaden Hunt is a poor man's Christian Petrarca, who is a but poor man's Jordan Degoe. Petrarca is the biggest tease in the AFL. Here's something: he's- is he tease or is he actually just not that great? No, I think he's a tease. Okay. I think, I think seen, everyone thinks that. I'm just wondering whether I'm just watching him week in, week out and going, I actually don't know if this guy's actually that good. Do you remember Do you remember <laughs> Queen's birthday 2017? No, I don't. <laughs> what did he do? Okay. What did he do that day? I'll look it up quickly while you're talking. He, he won the medal for best on ground. He showed how good he can be. The burst from a stoppage and then spend time forward, take overhead marks, Monster the one-on-one. He's quite agile. It, it, this year, it's just been his kicking execution that's let him down. If he kicked a bit straighter, he'd be up there with Dugowie this year. He's had enough shots. He's done well enough in the one-on-one to be up there with Dugowie this year, but he just hasn't kicked straight. And that's literally the difference. For me, oh, it's a, I get what you mean. For me, I might be a little bit more critical. On, I don't think he's fast enough. I think in this day and age to play that particular position, and this wasn't really a position that existed when he was drafted, right? Because now we see this new thing where instead of your key forward playing out of the goal square, you play a weird matchup combo forward out of there. You play Gary Rowan. You play Jaden Hunt, apparently. You play Jordan Dugowie. You get that sort of matchup. And he should be perfect for that, but I don't know if leading up at the ball, he can beat his man. So we have to use him as a high half forward coming back into the 50. And for me, his pace worries him there. I'm not That's not his fault, right? This position is a new thing that has suddenly evolved, which he on paper should be perfect for. I just really want to see him take that mantle off Jaden Hunt and his wonderful headband and do it himself. I think he's... His strength one on one is his key, and you look at you look at Robbie Gray going into the forward line. You look at another great James example Siebel going yeah. into the forward line. You look at Nat Fife going. None of those guys are really fast. I mean, Dangerfield goes in the forward line. He's probably faster than the rest of them. But every team has that one player who is a big bodied mid that goes into the forward line and does damage in the one on one in contested marking. Petrarca is that guy for Melbourne, but he can't kick straight. I have to, yeah. I mean, I do agree with that, but also at the same time, I also think that 
the idea of the big body mid going in there is longer. Like I think Fife is one of the worst forwards I've ever seen play in the forward line. I never, I always think on paper that looked amazing. Like, oh, imagine if you could put him forward and then he's, he's, he's not fast enough. So he can't beat his man. You have to sit it on his head, in which case he can sit on someone else's. I think Robbie Gray, who you mentioned there is the outlier because he is the perfect example of someone who is fast enough or just smart and clever enough to get this much separation from his man that he can hit up at the ball on the shortest of short leads and be able to win it that way. But I love how we started off on the Swans and now we've gone down on a Robbie Gray rabbit hole. No, I'm about good. to take it back to the Swans. What about a Luke Parker comparison? Luke Parker is a good comparison. Luke Parker can do anything he wants anytime he wants. That guy is amazing. He he can go overhead. He's strong in the contest. He can kick the ball. He can kick a ball out of, out of a stoppage. That's the way Petrarca should be playing. Yeah. Yes, I agree. Yeah. I agree. Ideally, he is thrown in the forward line as a mismatch when you want to do something creative as opposed to a permanent half forward, which he's not using that bullocking aspects of him to extract, take three or four powerful steps and then deliver. And then you can put him in the forward line where he gets a weird matchup and he causes some carnage there. I think the Luke Parker comparison is an excellent one. I think if if Melbourne didn't have the injuries that they do this year, they could be or would be playing their midfield, rotating it the way Collingwood did last year, rotating their mids into the forward line on a constant basis, Clayton Oliver going through there, Jack Viney going through there, Angus Brayshaw, Christian Petrarca, and just constantly rotating them around so no one's ever got a match-up for too long and they can do damage in both parts of the ground. I think if Melbourne were fully fit, that would be the way to play them. Yep, I think that is pretty fair. We've got to touch on both of your loves. We've got to talk about the Swans. <laughs> and I want to shout out my guy, James Harms, very quickly. That guy yes, is for I real. That guy is for real. He's so yeah. good and it's yeah. so underrated. He's rocking Jack Watts' number four on his back and he is doing that thing a serious service. And this this podcast, by the way, um, was very pro the Jack Watts redemption narrative, which we've been cruelly robbed of this year. When he, you know, his last sort of game, I think he got on there and nearly cried in his post-game press conference and basically apologised for all the things that he'd done, but also at the same time acknowledged everything that the shade that had been thrown at him for years. And I really wanted him to come out the end of that as the reborn man. And the fact that we don't get that really saddens me. And it should sadden Port Adelaide as well because he was looking pretty good. Uh, I yeah. think we have to leave it there. Gemma, thank you so much for coming on the Ruck Rover today. I really, really appreciate it. For all of us who are listening now, you can follow Gemma, obviously, at Play On Radio and listen to I See It But I Don't Believe It. Still the best name in AFL podcasting history. Gemma, thank you so much for coming on. Really appreciate it. Thank you for having me.